John chapter 20. I'm going to read verses 19 through 23. John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus unto them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said that, he breathed on them, and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted. Unto them, and whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would pour out thy Spirit into our hearts that we might understand your word, that we might appreciate what Christ hath done to redeem a people unto himself, and what he would have us to do as we go out and preach the gospel and how we would deal with one another in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, Well, this morning I want to go through verses 19 through 23 and talk about some of the things that are in there so we might appreciate the things that the Lord has done and what he means here when uh, he has written these things for us to read. But I want to spend most of the time talking about verse 23 and what it means to forgive others, what it means to have sins uh, remitted and and released. So uh, I don't think the church has a an appreciation of what forgiveness means because they want to apply two different standards. They want one standard for themselves and then another standard for God. And so I want us to appreciate that it's the same for God as it is for us. He would not have us go out and behave differently in the world than he himself behaves. So we'll get to that in just a few minutes when we get down to verse 23. But in verse 19, it talks about the same day and evening being the first day of the week. And so I wanted us to, again, appreciate that the Lord is there the first day after uh, the Saturday Sabbath. And it says in your English translation, and we've talked about this before, that it should be translated as then the same day at evening being the first of the Sabbaths, plural. In the Greek there, it's the word Sabbath. Um, if you use the Blue Line Bible to study, it's going to have the word Sabbath there in singular. And so this is kind of a a academic point is if you're using the Blue Line Bible and online studying aids, be careful because they're kind of sloppy. So you got to refer to the books, and it's plural in the Greek, and so we should appreciate that they're moving now through the uh, Feast of Weeks. And so this is the first of the Sabbath weeks leading up to the Pentecost. You're going to count seven Sabbath weeks, and then you're going to add one day, get to the Pentecost. And so everything is taking place here according to the Mosaic Law, according as how things were laid out in Leviticus chapter 23, which I covered last week. And we are to appreciate in Leviticus 23 that the Lord tells Moses to tell the people that when they come into the land that the Lord gives them, that they are to bring a a wave offering on the day after the Sabbath, on the morrow after the Sabbath. And so Jesus is the wave offering, and so everything's going according to exactly how God laid it out. Now, Jesus has come into what land? He's come into the land of the living because he's gone through the uh, grave and the death, burial, and resurrection, and now he's come into the land of the living, which is the land he's going to give the saints. And so it is appropriate, and according to the law, that he would make a wave offering before God, 
which is what he does. And so that helps us to unravel verse 17 when he says, Touch me not, for I have not yet ascended unto my Father. So the Lord, prior to verse 19, he's ascended to the Father. He's presented himself as the perfect sacrifice. He wouldn't let, her, let himself be touched because he would have been defiled. Everything we touch, we defile. So until he'd gone up there and presented himself before the Lord in accordance with the wave offering, now the Lord, uh, Heavenly Father, has accepted that, and now he's come back, and now he's presented himself in the room with the disciples. Now, I think we should appreciate that the doors were shut and the disciples were there for fear of the Jews. They had, certainly had good cause to be fearful of the Jews. They'd just seen what had happened to Jesus, who after uh, the course of three and a half years of his ministry, that for envy was he delivered over to the uh, Sanhedrin and they, um, in a mock trial and where he was um, falsely accused of things and was condemned to death illegally, contrary to the Mosaic law, he was murdered. Bottom line was Christ was murdered. So they have good reason to be fearful. And you know, when you go through the book of Acts, that they, um, um, Herod took James and uh, slew him, and then he arrested Peter with the intent to slay him. Paul, of course, was chased around and dogged all the time that he uh, ministered, and uh, Stephen was stoned. So these people were rather hostile to Christianity, and they indeed took them and murdered them. So these people have very good reason to be fearful, in the flesh, that is. They have reason to be fearful because they don't appreciate and understand what the Lord will do on their behalf and how the Lord will shepherd them and um, care for them as he sends them out into the world. As a uh, preacher used to say, uh, mortal men are immortal uh, so long as they are about the go- so long as God has work for them to accomplish. So so long as God has things for these disciples to do, they are immortal. They will accomplish everything that God has set before them, and as indeed every one of uh, the saints will do the same. We will live on this earth until such time as the Lord is done with us. So there they are assembling for fear, and the Lord shows up in their midst. And he says unto him, the first words out of his mouth are, peace be unto you. Now, why would he share that with them? Well, it's true they are in fear of the Jews, and so that might be um, music to their ears, if I can use that language. But the most important thing is, because of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, they have peace with God. Jesus has gone to the Father, and the um, sacrifice has been accepted by the Father. He's accepted what Christ has accomplished on behalf of his people. And so we have peace with God through what Jesus has accomplished. This comes from Romans chapter 4, verse 25, speaking of Christ, who was delivered for our offenses, that is to say, because of our sins, was delivered and was raised again for our justification. Having been raised from the dead is evidence that God was satisfied with the sacrifice that Jesus had made of himself. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, being justified by what Christ has accomplished, being justified because we have faith in him and uh, our sins were imputed to him, which I'll talk about later, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first time the Lord brings peace here, or uses the word peace, it has to do with our positional and judicial relationship with God that um, was accomplished by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Prior to that, as is true for all people uh, who do not believe on the the Lord Jesus Christ, they are at enmity with God and they are abide under the wrath of God. Until such time as they have made peace with God through Christ, they abide under the wrath of God. So the first time the Lord uh, speaks to them, says peace unto you, he's speaking about where they are positionally. 
Um, the second time he speaks about it, he's going to use the term again there in verse 21, peace be unto you. And he says that in the context of verse 22 in terms of that they will have received the Holy Ghost. Now, um, in Isaiah 52, 14, I want us to appreciate what is written there. Um, actually, I don't want to get there yet. I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay, I'm where I want to be. Um, in verse 20, when the Lord comes to them, it says here, He showed unto them His hands and His side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. It's interesting to note that when the Lord went to the cross in Isaiah 52:14, it talks about how His visage was marred more than any other man. When the Lord went to the cross, He was absolutely brutalized. He was scourged, as you know, which means to be whipped um, with a, uh, a cord that has, you know, they said it had pieces of metal in it, pieces of bone in it, so that it would actually shred his skin. So he was absolutely brutalized when he went to the cross. Scripture also talks about how they plucked his whiskers off of his face, so his visage was marred more than any others, meaning that when he went to the cross, the Lord was, um, uh, well, he was a physical um, mess, uh, perhaps unrecognizable by virtue of the brutality that he had suffered. And so he is raised from the dead, or he raised himself from the dead, and when they see him, um, he yet has the wounds in his hands and his feet and the wounds in his side. And I find that a little bit peculiar, that he would be healed from everything except for those wounds. Now, I think as saints, we can appreciate that when we receive our glorified bodies, that it will be just that. It will be glorified. You will not suffer from any physical infirmities. If you happen to have been a saint fed to the lions, you know, in the Roman Colosseum, you will be reconstituted. Many saints were burned at the stakes and turned into a pile of ash. They'll be reconstituted, and everybody's going to have their glorified body, all those that are in Christ, except Jesus, who, having a glorified body, yet has these wounds. Now, we should appreciate that when we see him, when we go to glory, we are going to know exactly who he is because he's going to be the only individual who has those wounds. We will know that he is indeed the Lamb of God that was slain from the foundation of the world. And so Revelation chapter 5, six, verses 6 and 7 speaks about that. It speaks about how he is the Lamb who was slain, and everybody will know that and we will appreciate what he has accomplished on our behalf and the things that he suffered to redeem a people unto himself. Um, in verse 20 here, it says that they were glad, but when were they glad? They were glad when they saw the Lord, when they appreciated and recognized him for who he was. Then were they glad. And so then the next thing the Lord says is, peace be unto you. And so this peace has to do with the peace that passeth all understanding. And that's in Philippians chapter 4, um, verse 7. Um, where we read, I'll pick it up in verse 6 of Philippians, be careful for nothing, that means don't be full of concern or care, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Now you can do this because you have received the Holy Ghost, which he's next going to breathe unto them, and therefore they have a relationship with God where God indwells them, and they indwell God. And then he says in verse 7, and the peace of God which patheth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So once you understand and appreciate that you are in the presence of the Lord, that's what it says here, when they knew, when they saw the Lord, once they've received the Holy Ghost, um, they have the peace of God that passeth all understanding. 
Now, this last couple of years have been really crazy, not only locally, but globally. And a Christian should not be concerned about those things because a Christian should know, one, God is sovereign over everything and everything is going exactly the way the Lord has intended it should go. And one who has the Lord dwelling in them should have this peace uh, of appreciating the relationship they have with God and indeed understanding what is going on. Not necessarily why, but you should know that all things work together for good to them that love God. That's a qualifying statement. Um, um, and that all things work together for good to them that love God. Um, I'm messing up. Say that, huh? To the hem of the call. I didn't want to take it that far, but let me go to Romans <laughs> chapter 8. I'm so sorry. Uh, thanks for uh, your help there. So let me read it. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Thank you. I want us to appreciate that not everything works for good for everybody. It works for good to them that love God. It works for the good of the saints, to them whom God has called. So as a Christian and you're looking around this world and you're told you're sick even though you don't have any symptoms and you're told you're sick when even when you test negative, you know, you could really be sick. The world has just gone nuts, but God understands and it's all part of his plan. And you should understand that too, that it's all part of his plan and you ought not to be worried about things. It's going exactly the way he wants it to go. Now, in verse 21, it says, Then the Lord, then said Jesus unto them again, Peace be unto you. And that's what I'm just speaking about. He says, My Father hath sent me... Even so, send I you. In Matthew chapter 28, you know, we read about the Great Commission there where the Lord says that all things have been commended unto him and that his disciples are to go forth into all the world and make disciples of people. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So he's giving them a commission to go out in the world and to preach the gospel, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. So the Lord goes with those whom he sends out into the world. Now, the Greek word for send there is different in terms of where he says, my father hath sent me, even so send I you. Jesus has told us many times in the Gospel of John that the Father sent him, and he sent him to finish his work. He sent Christ to go to the cross. I've shared this story with you before, but I um, will share it again. One day after, uh, it might have been a Christmas service, my in-laws had returned from a Catholic Christmas service, and they said, well, we, we know why Jesus was sent. He was sent to teach the people to love one another and to teach them some other things. And I said, no, he was sent to bear the sins of his people. He was sent to bear them on the cross. He was sent to redeem a people unto the Father. I cleared the living room out. Everybody left the room. <laughs> it's not what people want to hear, but that's the fact. Jesus was sent to accomplish a specific thing, and he did accomplish that specific thing. We are sent out into the world to preach the gospel. And we would not do that absent the Holy Ghost. The Lord says, I will be with you even unto the end. So that is what we are to do, and that he will be working in us to accomplish that particular um, task. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse uh, 20, um, we read there very specifically that what we are to do. We are ambassadors. In 2 Corinthians 5, 20, it says, Now then, we are ambassadors... 
for Christ, and you know what an ambassador does. He's somebody from another country who lives in your country, and he represents not the interests of your country. He represents the interest of the country from which he has been sent. So we are ambassadors for Christ, and we are to uh, beseech, as it says here, uh, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. So ambassadors, people being sent out into this world, we do not represent the interests of this world. We represent the interests of the kingdom of heaven. We preach to people and tell them that they have to be reconciled to God. And it's an unconditional reconciliation. It's either surrender or die. It's either flee to Christ or suffer the wrath of God. Um, That's what we preach. And that's what we've been sent out to do. He didn't send us out to set up dental clinics and to teach people to love one another. He's sent us out to reconcile people to God. Now, back in John chapter 20 here, in verse 22, he's going to breathe on them and say, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Now, up until this point, as I've shared with you, that um, Jesus will do something, and then it says the disciples will believe, and then you'll go a little bit further in the Scripture, and you'll go like, well, it said they believed, but they didn't really get it. They really don't understand what's happening here. And when the Lord uh, had been risen from the, the tomb was empty, in verse 9 of chapter 20, it says here, for yet they knew not the Scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. And last week we covered that. We went over all sorts of Scriptures that talk about how um, Christ will come, um, and be abused, and then he will be crucified, you know, he will die, he will be resurrected from the dead, and he will ascend into glory. We cover those. The disciples had read the same, but they didn't understand any of it. Not only did they not understand what they had been reading, but they didn't understand when Jesus plainly told them what was going to happen. They didn't get that either. Well, now they're going to get it, because now they've received the Holy Ghost, and you have to have that before you can understand any of this. Second Corinthians, First uh, Corinthians chapter 2 uh, speaks about all of those things. So they're going to receive the Holy Ghost here, and we can appreciate doctrinally uh, what is written in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verse 45, where it says, For the first man, Adam, was made a living soul, and the last Adam was made a quickening spirit. So Christ is a quickening spirit. He's breathing in them. They are going to receive the Holy Ghost, and now they're going to be united with God. And as I mentioned last week, Peter's going to go from a simple fisherman with little or no understanding about what has taken place to a, um, um, a seminarian professor and beyond, because when we get to the book of Acts and he starts preaching, he starts quoting from all places in the scriptures and bringing it all together and helping people understand what things um, had happened, when, why they had happened, and what things were to um, follow. Consistent with receiving the Holy Ghost is regeneration, and that's 2 Corinthians 5.21. These people are being regenerated when they're receiving the Holy Ghost. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. He is a new creature. So we need to appreciate that when God indwells a person... They are not like Adam. We, they're not, it's not like we're rolling back the clock to where man uh, was previous to the fall. He's a new creature. He's one with God, and that was his, the Lord's prayer in John 17. You are a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things are become new. Having received the Holy Ghost, you've received the earnest deposit, and you have eternal life, and you are a partaker of the divine nature at that time. 
the disciples had not yet received that. Once they've received the Holy Ghost, they are equipped now to go out into the world and do exactly what he's told them that they need to do. Now, this is kind of an interesting parallel in Scripture because we know that when the um, apostles went forth, and by the way, the word apostle comes from the Greek word of the same, which means to be sent. When they go out, obviously they are capable, or God has made them capable of doing things that none of us um, are able to do. And there's a spiritual parallel. You recall when Elijah was taken up into glory, Elisha says to him, you know, he would like a double blessing of the Spirit. And Elijah says, well, you know, I don't really know. I'm paraphrasing. I don't really know about that. But if you see me ascend, you'll get it. So what happens to the disciples? They receive the Holy Ghost here, and then in the book of Acts, chapter 1, they go out with the Lord unto the Mount of Olives, and they see him go up, and then immediately after that, uh, the Holy Ghost is poured out unto them, and they receive a double blessing of the Spirit. So that's why they are able to do things that we're not able to do, because they received a double blessing of the Spirit. Now, notwithstanding that, we know what it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, and Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. It's on your handout there. But it, in there, it talks about how nobody in the church should ever boast about whatever they're able to do, because whatever they're able to do is directly related to the gift of faith that God has given them or the measure of Christ that has been given unto them. So everybody operates into the church according to what God has gifted them to do. So nobody should ever boast against another person as though it was of themselves and not the gift that they have received from God. So now we're looking at verse 23, and this is a very problematic verse for the Catholic Church and anybody that might adhere to the Catholic Church. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Now, the Catholic Church would have you believe that special gifts beyond what I've simply shared with you Gifts that essentially belong to God were given to Peter in particular and some of the other uh, apostles also. And through the process of apostolic succession, that gift went from Peter to whomever he might have conferred it on and then to the next one and the next one. And so all the way down through history, we have the Catholic confessional booth where the Catholic priest is said to be able to forgive sins. But not just any sin, he can forgive mortal sins, which are the most grievous of the two because the Catholic Church divides them to mortal sins and venial sins. I'm only sharing that with you because it's ridiculous. Um, you should not even be concerned about it, but let's talk about it uh, so that we understand what it's saying in the Scriptures here. Now, in 2 Peter chapter 3, um, verses 16 and 17 18, there's kind of a warning set before us in Scripture here. Now, years ago, I had a friend... Um, who would call me, and we would have um, biblical conversations, and he would love to do what I call a marine incursion. He'd love to go in and grab one verse, and he'd want to talk about it. And I would say, well, you know, listen, if you want to talk about something in Romans chapter 5, we've got to start in Romans chapter 3, go through 4, and get up to 5, because there's a logical progression before you can get and understand that verse. In the church I was in a number of years ago, the um, elder wanted to speak on Romans, something in Romans chapter 11. But he says, before I can get there, I need to go back to 9. So he spent the next three weeks explaining one verse in Romans chapter 11, but he started in 9, went through 10 before he could get to 11. And so it took three weeks. And so finally when he got to it, you go, oh, I get it. But if you just jump in there, and uh, you won't understand it. So in 2 Peter chapter 3, um, he says in verse 16, speaking of the apostle Paul, 
But I want us to understand that the Apostle Paul is not the author of anything in the Bible, but rather the Holy Ghost is. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And as we read in uh, maybe First Peter, that holy men of old spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. It's all God-breathed. The fact that he used Paul's pen or Peter's pen is insignificant when compared with that. It's all God-breathed. So when he says here in verse 16 of Second Peter, he says, As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. You can take a verse and hang yourself with it. And you can take a verse and build an entire doctrine on, which the Catholic Church has done in a number of cases, about, in this, what we're talking about here, about who can forgive sins. And you're damned for it. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. So we need to be careful. Whenever you want to build a doctrine in the Scripture, you need to look at the big picture and step back a few steps about what's happening here. So with respect to whether or not the apostles can go out there and forgive sins, in Mark chapter 2, verse 7, the um, scribes and Pharisees are having another disagreement with Jesus, and they make it very clear to us that only God can forgive sin. Only God can forgive sin. So, with that understanding, now let's go take a look at Matthew chapter 18, verse 18, because people um, are, have this issue about, well, what if somebody sins against me? What do I do with that? Um, and how do I deal with that? So, in your handout, I want us to understand here, there's a bigger picture here, because the Lord is going to say something in Matthew chapter 18, verse 18. And this here, he's speaking to all of the apostles. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 19 is something, it's virtually identical, but he's speaking only to um, Peter in 16:19. In verse 16:19, he's speaking only to Peter, and he says, I will give unto thee the kings of the kingdom of heaven, and whosoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The Greek there is verbatim, the same as it is in Matthew 18, 18. So I have given you in your handout Matthew 18, 18, because I want us to understand what is in there in the Greek, because the translations are not good. You have in front of you um, from two different uh, study Bibles. The, the top one is there is the verse in Matthew 18, 18, and it has there the verb tenses and to help us understand the grammar that is in there. Then the one below that is from the J.P. Green Interlinear Bible. On the left is J.P. Green, in the center, J.P. Green Greek, and then on the right is the King James. So what it says there, and this is where um, you can't just make an excursion, you've got to dig a little bit deeper here. It says, Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye, meaning all of the disciples, not just Peter, so the Catholics want to say it was just conferred upon Peter, but the Bible here is now expanding it to the other disciples, Whatsoever um, ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Unfortunately, they didn't uh, take into account the Greek verb tenses here. And the words that are important to us uh, are written in the perfect participle passive. And what it should say is what you see circled on the bottom left-hand corner there. Truly I say unto you, Whatsoever you may bind on earth shall occur, 
having been bound in heaven. Let's not get the cart in front of the horse here. Having been bound in heaven, and whatsoever you may loose on earth shall be having been loosed in heaven. In other words, the disciples are going to go forth with having an intimate relationship with God, and he's going to reveal his will to them so that the things that they engage in are consistent and conformity with the will of God. If they're going to forgive someone of their sins, those sins will have already been forgiven by God the Father, and they're simply um, expressing that. So when you uh, appreciate it, what's written in the Greek, you can understand that they're not running around uh, binding and loosing sins upon people. If that were the case, I would ask the question to you, who needs Jesus? Let's just pay Peter some money and he'll forgive me my sins. I mean, we know where men goes with things. They corrupt everything they do and money works itself into it. And that's what we see in Acts chapter 8, verse 18, when Simon the sorcerer thinks that the apostles can confer the Holy Ghost on whomever they touch. Because when you read the book of Acts, it kind of, you think it starts out that way. And so Simon the sorcerer wants to pay Peter so that he can buy that gift. And that'd be a wonderful gift to have. <laughs> Just confer the, the Holy Ghost on anybody you want, which means you don't need God, you don't need faith, because I can drop the Holy Ghost in your life and regenerate you. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Uh, but that's not the way it works. So uh, having that appreciation, we should know that this is all between us and the Father, and we are simply the agents that he sends out in the world to accomplish his will. So... Um, Simon the sorcerer, they tell him that he's accursed and that he says, well, pray for me. And that's the, that's the right answer. Pray for him and pray for people that have these terrible misunderstandings. By the way, in the book of Acts, by the time you get to chapter 10, the uh, Holy Ghost falls upon Cornelius and his group before Peter even does anything. It's boom, it comes down. So um, you need to understand what's happening there. Now, so this issue of forgiveness, what does that mean and who does it and how should we all respond into this world the church, I think, I think when I say church, I mean the people that are in the church, I think that we have a sloppy misunderstanding about what that means. Romans 6.23 says, as you know, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Somebody sins, they're under the wrath of God unless there's a relationship between them and God. Um, death is what waits for them because that's the result of sin. If you sin, you're going to die. So people take this sloppy misunderstanding of, about forgiveness and they import it and they imply it and they impute that understanding with the way they think God deals with people in this world. That, well, you know, you're supposed to forgive people of your sins and so we just kind of walk away from it. And because I think that's what the Bible tells me to do, then that's probably how God's going to deal with me. I'm going to sin and I'm just going to be able to walk away from it. And so God loves everybody, he forgives everybody, and just we got a great big grandfather in heaven. And... Um, Matthew chapter 18, which I read, Matthew 18, 18, it talks about this binding and loosing things on earth. You go down a few verses, and uh, the question is asked in verse 21, Then came Peter unto him and said, Lord, how oft shall I forgive my brother? Shall oft all my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Till seven times? Then verse 22, Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Now, this is one of those marine excursions I was telling you about where my friend would pull this one up and we want to go, oh, okay, I, I guess I'm, they sin against me and I just got to keep forgiving them. If that's your understanding of that, then what takes place a few verses up is rendered absolutely meaningless, absolutely meaningless. Let's look at uh, Matthew 18, look at verse 15, and this is the protocol that's supposed to be followed in church when somebody um, sins. In 
Verse 15, it says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, so somebody in church sins against you, go and tell them his fault between thee and him alone. So they sin against you. You tell them, hey, you've sinned against me. Now, there's, those two, there's, there's two letters in the Bible that just flip everything on its head. If, if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. So if he hears you, if he understands and appreciates that he's sinned against you, and he's not going to hear you if he doesn't believe what you're saying is true, if he doesn't believe he's sinned against you, there's no repentance there. Um, but if he does hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he shall, will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. Verse 17, and if he shall ne neglect to hear them. In other words, he still doesn't understand that he sinned against you. He's not hearing either from you or from the witnesses. There's no repentance there. If, and if he will neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. He's not repenting. He's not hearing. So what do you do? You boot him out of the church. Okay? That's, I mean, it's, it's fairly simple there. So the church isn't supposed to just look the other, the other way and go, ah, forget about it. Uh, we'll just forgive him, whatever that, that means. So if he's not hearing, he's not repenting. Now, in Luke chapter 17, verses 3 and 4, it's, it says this really very clearly. And so here's how you've got to look at lots of different verses to have an appreciation for what is being said here. And Luke 17, verses 3 and 4. He says, Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. Or you tell him, he's sinning, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and in seven times a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. So we can see here that clearly repentance is a condition of what is taking place here. Now, here's where you need to step back from the Bible a few steps. Big picture here. What did John the Baptist preach? Right out of the starting gate, what's he doing? Repent and believe, um, for the kingdom of God is at hand. You read about it in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, and in Mark chapter 1, verse uh, 14 and 15. Interesting, when John the Baptist is done with his ministry, what does Jesus preach right out of the starting gate? Repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus does the same thing. Repent and believe. There needs to be work done in the heart here. Now, a verse that is commonly misunderstood, it comes from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. So I'm just going to throw this out. It takes a while to develop it, but I just want to set it before you. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. This involves repentance. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward. He's not long-suffering to everybody. He's long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, not willing that any of us should perish. These are all qualified statements, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If you don't repent, then obviously God is not working on your hearts. In John 16, 8, the Lord talks about sending the Holy Ghost. What's the Holy Ghost going to do? Convince the world of sin, of righteousness, and in judgment. The Holy Ghost has to come into a person's life, convict them of their sin, that they would repent. Now, there are two kinds of repentance in this world. 
Um, this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, um, this is on the occasion, you'll recall what was happening in the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians, there was a man who was committing fornication with his father's wife. And so when the Apostle Paul finds out about it, he sends a letter and says, you need to stop what you're doing right now. You need to put that person out of the church because a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. So now here in chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, he's talking about the fruits that that letter bore, that he convicted them of their sin, and they appreciated it, and they sorrowed. They were sorry about what had taken place there. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he says in verse 9, Now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry. You know, I'm not, I'm not happy that you all got upset about this thing, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner. So there's a godly repentance, a godly sorrow, that ye might receive damage in us by nothing, other that ye would not suffer loss. Verse 10, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation. Godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of or regretted. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. The sorrow of the world worketh death. There's a man hypothetically speaking, who commits a murder and he is caught. And he's grievously sorrow. He's repenting, tearfully so, because he's going to the gallows. He's repenting and he's upset that he got caught. He's not sorry about the murder that is sending him to the gallows. Now, what did Judas do? Judas had a worldly sorrow, and where did it end for him? He hung himself. He committed suicide. In um, Hebrews chapter 12... It speaks of the sorrow that Esau um, manifested when he had lost his blessing. He had sold his birthright for a morsel of porridge. So in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16, it says, Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know that afterwards, when he would have inherited the blessing, he sold it, he lost it. He was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. What was he doing? He was weeping before his father um, Isaac, who had given the blessing to Jacob because Jacob had deceived him. But if you read through the details of that, you'll see that Jacob starts to, I mean, Isaac starts to tremble because he understands that the blessing is going to Jacob. He knows the sovereignty of God, and he knows that that's the way God wants it to go. Jacob's going to experience something similar when he's blessing Joseph's children because he wittingly switches his hands and puts the blessing to Manasseh, and I think instead of Ephraim. Um, But nevertheless, God knows how it's supposed to go. So uh, Esau is weeping, but um, Isaac would not repent and change his mind, no matter how much he wept. But he was weeping because he lost it, not because he despised the birthright of God, but he was weeping because he had done something and lost, lost the blessing. So that's a worldly repentance. People do this all the time. They engage in worldly repentance and not a godly repentance. It doesn't lead to salvation. So that is something we need to think about when we are um, dealing with people that have sinned against us. So now on your outline, I'm over on page three. So what do we do when people sin against us? And I have a bee in my bonnet about those bracelets everybody was wearing, WWJD. What would Jesus do? Um, What should we do? Well, I ask the question, what did Jesus do? Not what would Jesus do, but what did Jesus do? 
Now, in Matthew chapter 6, this is another verse that people run to. Matthew chapter 6, um, verse, I think it's verse 18. Uh, Matthew 6, 12. Matthew 6, 12, it says, and for, this is part of the, what we call the Lord's Prayer. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In other words, you treat me the way I treat other people. So I ask the question, how should I treat other people? How is this supposed to work out here? Well, I should treat other people, really, the way God would have me to treat them. So what does the Bible say to do? I should open up the Bible and do what the Bible says to do. Well, in Luke, excuse me, Matthew chapter 18, we've already read that. It talks about there needs to be repentance. In Luke chapter 17, it talks about there needs to be repentance. So there needs to be a godly repentance and not a worldly repentance. So we ask the question, what did Jesus do? Does he just forgive uh, carte blanche? Does he forget? If he would do that, he would be condoning unrighteousness. He would be condoning unrighteousness. And we are not to do that. In Job chapter 10, verse 14, in Job 10, 14, he makes the question, if I sin, then thou markest me. In other words, you note my sin, and thou will not acquit me from my iniquity. God just doesn't go... Forget about it. I will not acquit me of my iniquity. In Nahum 1.3, it says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will, not all, and will not at all acquit the wicked. So the Lord just doesn't acquit. That might happen in our court of law because the judge might be showing mercy, but that's not justice. Mercy and justice are two different things, but they come together in Christ. In Job 8.3, Job asks the question, and Job 8.3, doth God pervert judgment, or doth the Almighty pervert justice? Well, obviously, God does not do that. That is not in him to do something like that. But we would say, well, I'm just supposed to forgive everybody that, that does me wrong and not be concerned about it. And then we would say, well, you know, my God would not do this, or my God would not do that. He will behave a certain way. Job asked the question in Job 4.17, shall mortal man be more just than God. Shall a man be more pure than his maker? And the answer is no. You cannot be more just than God. You cannot be more pure than your maker. So again, what do we do? Well, what did Jesus do? When Jesus was on the cross, what did he do? He had been put there um, through great sin of man. Um, and when he's on the cross, what does he do? Does he forgive the people? He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So what does he do? He prays for the people. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to pray for them. In Matthew 5.44, in the, what are known as the, the Beatitudes, or I should say in the Sermon on the Mount, he tells us that we are to love them that sin against us. We are to bless them, and we are to pray for them. We want to bid, harbor no bitterness uh, for them in our hearts, but we are not to treat them as though they have done nothing wrong. You're going to have to work through your anger. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, and this verse has been changed in the other Bibles, but it's important for us to understand it. In Matthew 5, 22, he says, But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause, without a cause, shall be in danger of the judgment. That word without a cause, those three words have been taken out of the other Bibles. You have a cause to be angry at you when somebody sins against you. And indeed, that is true with God. It says that in Psalm 711, he is angry with the wicked every day. So you're going to have to work through your anger. You don't want to harbor bitterness in your heart towards them. 
You want to love them and pray for them and indeed bless them. Now, our deacon read this morning from Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, you can see in there a individual who is confessing their sins before God. And he says in there, against thee and thee only have I sinned. All sin is against God. If somebody sins against you, they're sinning against God. If you sin against somebody, you are sinning against God. But in the Psalm 51, I hope you could appreciate there the repentance and the confession of sin and the deep sorrow that was manifest in um, the psalmist's heart. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it talks about how if we confess our sins, and that word in the Greek there means continuously or repeatedly because you're going to sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So confession is important. To be sure, when you sin, and he says this to uh, um, David, the Nathan the prophet says this to David, he says, you're not going to die. You're not going to die because your sin's forgiven by God. It's been imputed to Christ. But by the way, you're going to suffer the temporal consequences of that sin. And we do the same. You sin, you're going to suffer the temporal consequences of that. And David, indeed, the sword never left his house. And he suffered all the things that Nathan the prophet laid before him. You will suffer the temporal consequences. But the Lord did not leave him or forsake him because his sin were forgiven by God. So God's forgiveness starts with a conviction on your heart that you've sinned, a confession and repentance, as we see that taking place in Psalm chapter 32. Um, it speaks about this process. In Psalm 32, he says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and whose spirit there is no guile. God, it's a blessing when he does not impute to you or hold to your account your sin. But he does hold it to Christ's account. It's not imputed to you, but it's imputed to Christ. It has, it has to be dealt with. God's righteousness must be satisfied. If you continue to read in here, you can see how this person is convicted in your heart. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through roaring all the day long. If you sin and you salve your conscience and try to deny it, you're going to suffer an internal turmoil as this starts to eat away at you. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Verse 5, I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and my iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgression unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Confession works to repentance and then works to um, forgiveness. In 6a, he says, For this shall every one that is godly pray unto thee. So every one that is godly should suffer the conviction in their heart, and they should uh, repent of their sin. So the sins are not held to the account of this individual, and indeed they're not held to the account of any of the saints, but they are held to the account of Christ. And that's uh, our sins are imputed to him. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he hath made him sin, hath made Christ sin, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So the penalty for our sin was held to Christ's account, and he was held the guilty party. And you are not guilty of your sin anymore. Otherwise, there would not be justice. God's not going to punish somebody who's not guilty. He didn't punish his son um, because he was not guilty. He punished him because our sins had been imputed, and he was guilty. You'll see those words in Isaiah um, chapter 53. So God has mercy on us, and he has grace on us, 
but he's also righteous and his judgment prevails because um, it was paid for. The sins were dealt with. They were paid for by Christ. So absent the um, repentance, that person abides under the wrath of God. Now, so here's a question I have to help solidify this in our minds with respect to the sloppy understanding about forgiveness. What would make anybody think that God is going to forgive them of their sins and not judge their sins if he judged his son? If the Lord judged his only begotten son whom he beloved, why would he just walk away from yours? Well, he would not do that. He's going to judge sin everywhere he finds it, including if he finds it in his own son, where he put it when he imputed our sins to him. So John chapter 3, verse 36 talks about that um, in terms of abiding underneath the wrath of God. He says, I'll pick it up in verse 35. He said, The Father loveth the Son and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath life. If your faith and trust is in Christ, you would do so when you understand that you're a sinner, that the penalty for sin must be paid, and that Christ in your stead paid that penalty, that your sins were imputed to him. And therefore you have everlasting life. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. So those are words that people don't want to hear, but again, that's consistent with the body of Scripture. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that's what I want to share with you this morning. Um, I am finished, but I want us to appreciate what we're reading there in John chapter 20 in terms of about uh, forgiving sins willy-nilly as though the disciples had a powers that belonged only to God. They don't have that power, and neither do we, and that... Um, you would forgive somebody of their sins against you if they repent of those sins. But either way, you're going to need to work through the issues associated with that. You're going to need to pray for them. You're going to need to love them. You're going to need to bless them. Um, and that's a difficult process, but it's one that the Lord has called us to do, and we can do it through Christ Jesus because we ought to appreciate what he has done for us and be appreciative and um, understanding of those things. Um, amen. Amen.